Welcome to the ProcureTech Podcast, where we aim to excite and inspire you about how technology will shape our profession's future. I'm your host, James Meads, and I worked in corporate procurement for 16 years before starting my own business as a content creator and consultant in the procurement technology space. I'm deeply convinced that procurement must become less technocratic and embrace the entrepreneurial spirit and creativity if we're ever going to shake off our image of being a process-obsessed, box-ticking function. You definitely won't find vanilla content on here, and we're not afraid to tackle some controversial topics and tell it like it really is. So if that's your thing, now let's jump right into this week's episode. Yes, greetings and welcome to another episode of the ProcureTech podcast. We are the official podcast of procurementsoftware.site, where you can search, filter and find every single procurement technology startup and software company under the sun for in less time than it takes you to boil an egg and completely free of charge. Check out procurementsoftware.site if you would like to do that. But without any further ado, I'm going to introduce today's guest, who is Ruth Kremer. She is former investment manager for IT startups at Europe's most active seed investor. And also she's an advisor to the German version of the very famous TV series, Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, depending on whether you're listening to this from this side of the Atlantic or from the other side of the pond. And she's also written a book too, which I'm sure she will tell us a little bit about. So Ruth, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And you're a bit nervous before we before you came on saying it's the first time that you've done a podcast in English. I can assure the listeners who speaks better English than most British people. So especially if you've ever <laughs> been to somewhere like Liverpool or Glasgow. So we'll see about that. <laughs> we met, I think it was about three years ago now at the inaugural Digital Nomad Fest in Bansko, Bulgaria, where I spend most of the year. And uh, And yeah, I just found what you do fascinating really in terms of you know what i do in the procurement and supply chain technology space and especially now i think it's even more relevant with you know venture capital funding being a little bit tougher to get and perhaps buyers of software being a little bit more cautious about what they invest into so we have people from both the software startup side as well as potential buyers of the software that listen to this so i think on either angles, they're going to get a lot of value from some of the tips that you can share. But before we do dive into that, just give a quick intro of your sort of career path and how you ended up getting into this space. Ooh, good question. Uh, so originally, I studied mathematics, which I'm not really using anymore. <laughs> More like the kind of thinking I think it is. So, well, then I started off somehow differently, but it was the totally wrong career path, I guess. And kind of out of frustration, desperation, <laughs> I kind of started my own business because I realized that there is, you know, startups, well, they're always looking for money, right? And uh, I was coming from a background where I was doing a lot of public funding. So I was thinking, okay, public funding for startups, maybe there is a possibility to help with that. So I started a consultancy on that and it worked pretty well. And I got, by doing that work, I got in more and more than I had the opportunity to start uh, with the VC. And uh, that was so exciting. I just couldn't turn that down. So I started there and I learned a lot. 
yeah, about also about legal stuff, about the whole investment process, about, about and then it's um, until today. So my my focus basically the the event. Evaluation, like how to do a value, proper evaluation in early phases and um, all the numbers crunching and so on. But I had to realize at some point that, um, yeah, being an employee is not for me. <laughs> Probably <laughs> never will be. So uh, I left and um, went back to my business. And then I didn't really have so much clue what to do. Should I do public funding again or whatever? And then suddenly a lot of people approached me like, Ah, uh, Rose, you uh, were working at VC. Can you help me with my pitch deck? Can you help me with my financial planning? So I did that quite often. And then the German Dragon Stan approached me. And uh, that even got me more of a reputation as a coach. Yeah. And currently, I, well, I was also working as an actor at university for quite some while. I don't have the time anymore. Because quite now, uh, right now, I'm um, trying basically to shift my business around a bit more and trying from the knowledge I gained over the year, um, I'm trying to develop knowledge products or learning products for entrepreneurs uh, and especially the numbers, of course. And yeah, make it a bit more scalable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We all have that challenge. I'd like to touch it. So your tagline on your website is numbers are sexy. And I like that because... I also think that procurement and supply chain is sexy, but not many people do. And especially now, because it's become a lot more prominent in the media, especially since COVID and geopolitical instability, you know, war in Ukraine, the, the Suez Canal uh, blockage, it's really coming to the forefront now. So let's dive into two newly sexy topics, which are numbers and procurement. And I'd like to break this down into two segments. So let's touch first of all on advice that procurement and supply chain tech software startup founders could get from you in terms of increasing their chances of closing funding rounds. And then in the last part of the interview, I'd like to look at, you know, what are some of the questions that potential buyers should be asking if they're performing due diligence on these software as a service companies that they're potentially entering into three, even five-year contracts in some cases. So I'd like to kick off. Can you tell us then some dirty secrets? How much do venture capital, venture capital companies really know about the industry sectors that they're investing into? <laughs> uh, well, that depends. <laughs> they might know a lot. They might know Hardly anything. So it also depends um, on the VC you're speaking to. So for example, if it's rather a small VC and a very specialized VC, they might have quite some experts in the team for the industries they're tackling. But if you are talking to a very big VC, chances are high that, well, that you are talking to a person that is not really into your industry at all. And basically, yeah ask some really silly questions. And I mean, everybody has to start somewhere, right? When I was working at the VC, I, I tried to gain a profile by trying to get cases from from specific industries. For example, I did a lot of, of deep tech stuff. Well, I was the mathematician, so that was <laughs> that, that made sense somehow. And I really liked the travel industries by that days, but I had to pick a first case at some point, right? So I had to get into it. 
Do you find that generally the, they, they tend to either focus on B2C or focus on B2B? Because, you know, even when you take into account the very different types of tech and innovation that's out there, you know, fundamentally the sales process for enterprise B2B SaaS is going to be a lot different in terms of scale and numbers than it is for something that's, you know, a $30 a month subscription that's, that, that's more of a B2C or, or, or B2 small B product. Yeah, I, I think I think most VCs are maybe not completely specialized, but I think most VCs have a focus and most investment managers probably too. Okay, so yeah. But doesn't have to be, it can also be industry. So sometimes it's really like B2B versus B2C. Sometimes it's a specialization like regarding, yeah, towards a, a certain industry or something. So that, yeah. Yeah, we, we're seeing a lot now that are very much into investing in AI and machine learning startups, aren't we? That seems to be a trend. But then everyone seems to put in their pitch deck, I guess, now that they utilize AI or ML in some way. Everyone is doing AI today. Everyone. And I'm yeah. like 20% or 10% who, who are really working with AI. Funny. Yeah. So beyond the product and the market, what else do they typically want to see in a pitch? Well, a lot more, um, starting with the team, uh, because the team is always basically this, this is a factor, especially in early phases. So, yeah, well, I can, I can give you like my really classic, uh, overview. So starting with the problem, then uh, presenting your solution, the product, then normally, well, especially when it comes to software, I'm a big fan. With, with the business model first and then doing market competition, then you have kind of some yeah things that vary. So for example, you could do a roadmap and say, okay, this is this is our traction, this is where we are now, this is where we are going. You could put like some financial stuff in there, some forecast or whatever. I'm not a big fan of that. You could give some details about your marketing or sales uh, funnels, procedures, whatever. So that depends really on the business. And uh, yeah, starting with the team or finishing with the team. Uh, did I forget everything? Maybe a call to action where you quickly say, okay, now we're looking for, I don't know, 2 million for doing this, that and that to reach those, those, those milestones, something like that. That all seems pretty logical to me. So, so what are the classic mistakes that founders typically make when they're pitching? Mm. So in Europe, I see it a lot, especially in Germany, but I think that's kind of a European thing. I think in the UK, it's a bit better that the the business model is actually totally underrated. So founders tend to talk a lot about their product and talking and talking and your future and their future <laughs> and whatever. <laughs> and you're sitting there like, okay, I got it. Like, Seriously, I got it now. Can we proceed? How will you make money? But they won't tell you. So, um, especially with the, you know, with the public pictures you see on some events or trade fairs, there's often the problem that they completely skip the business model. So if you are an investor or going there to like scout, uh, interesting startups, you oftentimes don't have any idea how they will ever make money if that is really an investing for you, investment for you. You might have understood what they're doing, but the rest is somehow blank. Well, they do the market mostly. Some skip the competition also. So the thing is, from all the points I, I listed before, 
they actually disregard too many. And they normally do like problem solution, a little bit market, and then a little bit what we've done so far or a little bit what we want to do and how much ma- how much money we want to raise. That is something they're always saying on, <laughs> on these events. But the business model is totally uh, underrated by them. And then, yeah, especially these times where investors you said it before are increasingly looking for the detailed business numbers, that's kind of an issue, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I always rally the, the, the point that I would rather have a product that only has 50% of the features, but is that intuitive to use that 80% of my organization will, will want to use it rather than something that, that has a lot of features, but is so complicated that, that, that nobody wants to use. I mean, I think love them or hate them. I think Apple have done a really good job at making their tech relatively easy for the average non-tech savvy person to use. So I think that 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 it that is a, a good comparison. You know, that especially if some founders perhaps are a little bit more techy and are not so focused on the business side. I think in procurement technology in general, most of the founders I mean it always surprises me that many of the founders in this space don't have a background having worked in a in an operational or strategic buying or, or supply chain role, you do tend to get a lot of ex-consultants coming into this space. You know, I know a few founders that are ex-McKinsey, ex-BCG, ex-Bain. Uh, and I guess they're going to be more focused on the numbers than perhaps someone with a more software development background. But I guess it's having that broad mix in your founding team then, isn't it? Because if you skew it too much the other way, then perhaps you don't focus enough on things like UI and features and too much on the numbers. So yeah, that's that's interesting. I think you need both, basically. Uh, but I actually, well, my experience is a little bit the other way around because um, a little bit, because my experience is that the tech people pretty quick with adapting the the crucial business stuff, like especially the thinking, like, thinking, okay, what do I have to measure? What KPIs are important? What what KPI signal grows or whatever? Whereas the the ex-consultant people, consultancy people, they have mostly a different thinking in terms of their their mindset is pretty um corporate. Yeah. You know, and well, conference are a different thing and different strategies or different approaches are important in, in corporates. It's, for example, for a startup, I always say, okay, I don't need like a huge analysis how, how big the market is. For me, it's just important. Is it big? Is it big enough? Can I do business <laughs> there? Yeah. So maybe it's like, you know, it's like a uh, half a billion for the start or one or two billion. Okay, fine. Check. Next point. So how will I get it to that market? Yeah. Whereas people from, from with a corporate mindset, they tend to do a lot of over analysis in that regard and tend to forget what is really important right here, right now with the business I'm trying to build. And that, that's my personal experience might be different in other countries, but, um, I'm not so super happy always with the ex-consultancy people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, procurement tech inherently because of what it is, is selling B2B and it's often business to corporate. And, you know, one of the things that, that I see when I look at the procurement tech market and I, and I speak to founders and they tell me who their target market is, 
a lot of them, you know, seem to be going after enterprise customers. And, you know, I always say that they fall for the old trap of, uh, of chasing after the prettiest girl at school in that sense, because, you know, the mid segment, the mid market is off is you, you almost have a, an infinite pool of potential customers with, within that space. Whereas enterprise, if you spend a year trying to nail down a DAX 40 or a, a FTSE 100 company, then that's a, a year's worth of sales down the drain if you don't manage to get them. And um, I mean, this is much more complex than having a nice website, a lead magnet and a smart email automation sequence like, you know, maybe a coach would have for, for, for selling a $999 coaching program. So, you know, selling to procurement generally is hard. You know, as a function, they don't have their own software budget. So they're probably having to go with their begging bowl to the CIO or to, to the CFO. And because of what we've been trained to do, you know, negotiate with suppliers and deal with getting sales pitches constantly, we're a pretty cynical and, and hard-nosed bunch generally to sell to. And it's saying this from someone now who's actually on the other side trying to sell to them in, uh, in some ways. Do you have any insights from everything that you've seen in the, in the VC world? Is it generally easier for startups that are selling to small and medium-sized enterprises to get funding versus those that are, are trying to pitch to large corporates with their product? I would have a tendency to say yes, but I'm not entirely sure. And things are really changing because um, there are quite some corporate right now who have even their own programs to make it easier for startups to get them as a customer, which I yeah. think is, is a quite interesting development, right? So some are, some are open for that because they know they might have some really nice solutions. Yeah, well, it depends. If, if you're really going like, uh, when, I, when I see like um, the classic uh, medium-sized German company, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's so much easier um, as a startup there. So yeah, I think it depends. It always depends on, on your solution, your specific market and so on, I guess. Yeah, I, I I get what you're saying. You're almost having to educate your potential customer why they need your solution in the smaller and medium-sized business space, even though the decision-making process is probably going to be faster than it is selling to corporate. Whereas you, you're right, for corporates, usually they'll understand the problem because they've got a more mature procurement and supply chain organization. So yeah, I do, I, I do kind of get that. So let's now switch our attention a little bit then to I'm a head of procurement or a chief procurement officer. And I've somehow by way of a miracle managed to convince my CFO to give me $100,000 to go and spend on procurement software. When a startup's young and probably not yet profitable, you know, as a procurement professional, what we would typically do is to look at something like Dun & Bradstreet or Rapid Ratings to, to, to check a company's financial stability. You can't do that with startups, can you? So can you maybe walk us through some of the typical warning signs that, that we should be on guard for that a startup potentially may have some issues or, or perhaps doesn't have as many customers as they say they do? Mm -hmm. Something you can quite easily see from from the outside is um, when the last funding round was. So no, there's normally a way to to get to know that. And uh, well, most IT startups, software startups have like quite regular intervals, like in terms of 
when they need to raise the next round. Um, so you can at least, yeah, yeah, you can at least have a, well, make an assumption like, okay, when will they next need money? And can that be pretty soon? And especially with the current market situation, yeah, could they be, could they be actually out of business before we really started the onboarding or whatever? And it's, it's, Simple, but maybe, yeah, but maybe because it's so simple, it's the first thing you could check. It's a tricky question. So what I would check would not be so much go into the direction of how much, well, how much funding they raise gives you, uh, raise gives you, gives you an, um, um, a clue about how much runway they have. So yeah, that's another easy one. What I would try to get into, especially if I'm, if I'm provided with some data, um, from from them and maybe in a in a due diligence uh, process or something, I would actually go and check the business model how healthy it is. So especially in terms of yeah of gaining customers because that's normally with software as a service models that's normally the tricky thing the the sales funnel. Um, so um, can I get any clue? about do they have like a healthy sales funnel? Yeah, is that a scalable model like it is? Or is there a lot of stuff still not working? So they're just trying to get money somehow, <laughs> either by clients or, or by funding or whatever. So uh, that could be, that could be a hint. Yeah. Or maybe talk with other clients. Yeah. That might also be a hint. Um, if there was something, if, if they saw something that was risky or maybe I even find someone, I mean, the startup won't tell me, but maybe I even find another company who dropped out of the, of the sales cycle, sorry, of the, of the process and didn't become a customer. And, and a lot of these startups will actually put their, their reference customers on their website because they're proud to show that they, that, that, that they have them. So that, that should be a fairly easy one to do. You mentioned about the funding rounds and when they got their last funding round. What resources would you recommend to go out and, and get that research from? Google. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I mean, you can always check the, the online uh, sources like, I don't know, Nothing or whatever. Sometimes you find something there. But uh, yeah, actually, actually, Google leads you normally to the, to, to the startup media where you find a lot of details about the funding round. So okay. um, actually, when I'm doing research and I need, I need to do that research if I'm, for example, helping um, a client with a with a company generation um, for going into a funding round or for doing the evaluation on a startup, then um, yeah, then I need to get that data somehow about like competing startups, and it's still one of the best sources. And talking to people, yeah, but that is that takes a lot of time, yeah, building your network, and and I don't and I don't think as a as someone from procurement from from a corporate that you want to go and do all that effort and and build yourself like a, a network in the startup scene to get that information <laughs> so. exactly yeah and unless like you say you're one of these corporates that have got their startup garage or, or something like that that would necessitate doing that anyway but that's interesting to know that so generally speaking then if you google the startup's name and funding round 
it's relatively straightforward to go out and find that. Because I mean, obviously, with me playing in this space, I use I use Crunchbase, but I realize that not everyone is going to have a subscription to that. And for the average Joe that's doing their due diligence, that's a really good tip, actually. It's, some of the solutions really are that simple, aren't they? Just Google the startup name and their funding round. Yeah, and for example, Crunchbase is not always super, super up to date. Yeah, if you really need like the up to date data, you will find like uh, on the on the media like TechCrunch or uh, the Next Web or something. They they normally have those articles about someone raising around. I mean, not only there, but later, but like the local media. Like we have two big uh, German startup platforms where you basically find. Every round bigger, like bigger than 100, 200,000 euros, you will find them there. You will find at least a short note there or something. They are, they are pretty busy and they are pretty, they're doing quite good job on that. So why not use that? So once you've got that, then where would you go next? Would you maybe then go to LinkedIn and look at the number of employees they have to see if they're perhaps getting a little bit too big too soon or? Well, that is something. And that is interesting if you can get data about like the, the growth over over time. And because if they're now you're having like 50 employees or whatever, you don't know if they're growing too fast. You only know that if, if you also know how much employees they had like last month and three months ago. And that is spread tricky. Oh yeah, LinkedIn gives you that. LinkedIn Insights gives you that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> I'm not sure if you need the premium version of LinkedIn, get access to that. Oh, okay. But LinkedIn has something called Insights that will tell you the growth of their employee count. So yeah, you yeah, you can do that on LinkedIn. Good to know. Then I definitely would use that. <laughs> Thank you. I learned something. Cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> Every day's a school day. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely that's a very good source then. Because yeah, growing too fast, especially especially in the number of employees. Well, it might be that they just got new funding, which is then actually a good sign because they just, if, if they if they grew like in the number of employees, uh, they grew a lot over the last three months. That shows they might just have gotten new money, fresh money. And so they're using it. Um, so it doesn't mean they're growing like that for another six months, but maybe in the course of, the talks and the, the due diligence, I would I would keep an eye on that and like watch that closely. Are they growing? Are they continuously growing like that, or was it just like after funding round and getting maybe new IT staff, whatever? That's a good sign. If they keep growing like that, it's a bit weird, especially for a software as a service company. Yeah. The last thing that I wanted to ask you, and you know, perhaps. You don't have so much experience in this, but I wanted to pick your brain on this anyway. How can corporates make it easier to work with startups, especially large enterprises? You know, they're inherently bureaucratic and have a lot of, you know, legal and internal audit and compliance requirements that often shuts the door on smaller companies. Do you maybe have some thoughts or tips on, on how that could work? I learned something over the years because uh, I think I even hosted a panel on this topic once. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. So these programs are working really well, as far as I know, because they are trying to somehow, yeah, break down the compliance process and the compliance DD they're doing on on new suppliers. 
So I don't know how exactly they do it. So it definitely has to do something with, well, making the decision, um, the decision process not so complicated. For example, um, for example, yeah, they have like dedicated budgets and like a few numbers of people who, who are able to decide. Uh, where the budget is spent on and so on. So yeah, making making the hierarchies a bit easier and yeah, not not so many levels. That is definitely the important thing. But I think the most important thing are really like all the processes towards compliance, um, all the things they need to check. So make it easier for them and make make it even possible for them to get through such a process. Because for example, some documents, uh, like you just stated before, there, there are some data, some documents startups just don't have. So you have as a corporate, you have to think, okay, what would give me like basically an equal validation? Can I say it like that? Like, and so, but what do they have and what could do the same for me? Because normally that's possible. Normally there is some kind of document, there is some kind of, of data or whatever that gives me the same information. But just because the process is so old and yeah has been there like forever, nobody thinks of that. And uh, that is actually no, not only that's the, the most um, problematic thing. And if they're willing to make some adaptions, it's actually pretty, pretty possible normally. That's good to know because it's something I'm really passionate about that to get corporates working with these you know innovative growth companies because a large corporate just doesn't move fast enough to be able to have in most cases that level of innovation internally and as a procurement function we we really really need that it's it's something that we the profession's been dragged kicking and screaming from the 1990s so we do really really need that and it can um maybe one sentence because i also think startups can can do something here because if they made the experience in some specific cases with one or two new clients and uh, they made some adaptions for them and, and told them, okay, you don't have that, that document, you can deliver us this other one or that kind of data or whatever. That is something you can basically collect. Yeah. You have to do some, some knowledge management there. So in order to present that to another prospective client and say, hey, I know there's always a problem with this, but last time this one, if you if you can even name them, um, helped us or, or uh, adapted the process and we could give them this kind of document and it worked, then normally they were like, mm, maybe we can think about that, you know? So there's something you can also do as a startup in, a, in an active way, pushing that forward. Sometimes it works, sometimes not. <laughs> so to round this up, if any procurement tech startups are listening to this and are maybe struggling to get their seed or Series A funding and are interested to learn a little bit more about what you do, uh, where can we send them to learn more? <laughs> to my website, numbersasexy.de. You can find me on Instagram. I'm always on my, even TikTok, but that is kind of in, in the build-up. <laughs> so you will always find me under my complete name, Bruce Krima and CNE, and uh, you will find me everywhere, basically. And we will link to all of those in the show notes and also to your book in case anyone wants to have a look at what you've been up to uh, as a recently published author. And it's in German only. 
<laughs> ah, okay. Unfortunately, yeah. We, we have a few German listeners, so yeah, maybe. Cool. Ruth, it's been an absolute pleasure. I hope we will get to catch up at some point over the summer. Uh, until then, look after yourself. Thanks for coming on and sharing your wealth of wisdom with my community. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Okay, so that was Ruth. If you're interested about getting your funding as a startup, or if indeed uh, you are looking to buy procurement technology and uh, worried about how to do your due diligence, I hope that has been of value to you. Thank you very much again for listening to the show. There are a lot of procurement podcasts out there. 37, in fact, we did a blog post on that recently. Go and check that out on our blog site, uh, on our website, if you would like to maybe listen to some other great podcasts in this space. But until then, We will see you again same time next week. Until then, bye for now.